This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the New Growth Podcast with Nikki Walton. Join her as she explores divine love as a key to spiritual growth, empowered service, and inner and outer success. If you'd like to support Nikki's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Nikki. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of New Growth. I am your host, Nikki Walton, and we are continuing with the teacher series. And today I have Rupert Spiro with me, and he has, I don't even know what to say about you. I just, thank you. Gratitude is what I have. And I want to welcome you before I share my story. (laughs) So thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Nikki. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yes. So I had to do some research yesterday on my Amazon order history to see like just about when it was that I came upon your work. And I'm going to share, he's he's an author of many books, right? Um, All of which I own. I believe I own all of your books on my Kindle. Um, I enjoy your videos tremendously. And I love your website because of the Q&A. That platform, that setup is very conducive for like the direct path. But let me share the books that I purchased and when I purchased them. So I have October 3rd, 2014. The first book I ever bought of yours was The Transparency of Things. And then I purchased The Perfume of Silence a month later, a month after that, Presence, The Intimacy of All Experience. Two months after that, Presence, The Art of Peace and Happiness. 2016, I repurchased The Transparency of Things. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you had a new edition. I don't know. No, no, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure why, but okay. And then 2017, um, 2017, Being Aware of Being Aware. And so that's my order history. And I believe, I believe I came upon your work because of my... Um, reading Ramana Maharshi and practicing self-inquiry. And I probably was Googling like, am I doing this right? And came upon your videos where you really break down self-inquiry in a really cool way, like asking the question a little bit different. Yes, yes. Yeah. But it's essentially the the, the same same understanding that he was sharing. But as you say, just putting in a few more steps that that then he put in and and making it in in some ways um, more available. Um, Yes. Yeah. So I would love to hear your awakening story, just walking us through how you found this path, um, like what inspired this path for you and how it's manifesting there now. <laughs> pausing to to see how I can um, condense the last forty five years into into a couple of minutes. So I think I'll. There are many ways I could respond to that question, Nikki. But I think I'll just say uh, very simply re- relate an experience that I had in my early twenties and the search that this initiated. And um, what that led to. So the, the experience was, was an experience that many, if not most, people have. I was uh, in my uh, teens. I was madly in love. Uh, I presumed that we were just going to 
get married and live happily ever after. <laughs> and um, one day my girlfriend just rang me and in a two or three minute telephone call told me that she had met someone else. Mm-hmm. So this was after three years of, of being wow. together. So not such an extraordinary story. Everyone has, most people have their own version of a, of a similar story. However, it had a very profound and lasting impact on me. This question kept recurring in my mind. If I can invest my happiness in a person, Mm -hmm. make my happiness dependent upon a person, a relationship, and that relationship can come to the end, can can come to an end in a two-minute phone call, then what can I reliably rely on as a source of happiness in my life? Is there anything objective uh, to do with a a relationship, uh, the work that I do, the the money that I earn, the health that I have, the house that I live? Is, Is there anything objective that we can rely on as a source of happiness. And it just became crystal clear to me as a result of this experience that nothing can be relied on as a source of happiness. And this is not because the person has let you down or the situation has let you down. They they were never supposed to be a source of happiness in the first place. Objective experience cannot possibly provide lasting peace and happiness for us. So this this, um, experience precipitated this deep search. I was already on the spiritual path. I was already uh, meditating and studying the classical non-dual teaching, but this really injected urgency into my my search. And fast forward now, um, many years, I, I'm with my teacher, Francis Lucille, and uh, it became clear to me what all the great religious and spiritual teachings say in one way or another, that happiness is the nature of our being. If we want happiness, the only reliable place to find that, the only place to find it is in, in oneself, in one's own being. And that really is what self-inquiry is. It is the investigation into the nature of one's being. And um, as a result of the the time that I spent with Francis and this practice of this exploration of myself or or my being, it it became clear to me, not just intellectually, but experientially, that that the nature of my being was peace or, or happiness and that there was no need to search for it in activities or relationship. And this, of course, does not imply that we cease engaging in activities and relationships. Far far from it. We continue to do so, but not for the purpose of finding happiness. If we expect a person or a situation to provide happiness or love for us, we are setting ourselves up for failure and disappointment. It is a recipe for misery. Mm. So that, 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 that was, that, that's a, a brief uh, <laughs> 40, 40 year sketch of the last 40 years. No, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. It's I know it's always a daunting question and even to have to go so much into the storyline, right? Um, well, I, there's many ways you, you, that story, that question could be responded <laughs> to, but I, I feel that that is the, that, that, that I, I've taken the, the most essential part of the story. Yes, yes. Um, for you, after meeting your teacher, Francis, who I've bought, I bought his books too after reading your site and seeing you refer to him and his books are fantastic. And I wonder when you began waking up to that recognition of happiness or true happiness, right? Genuine, real, stable, firm, subtle joy, love inside. What was that 
progress, that process like? Was it like immediately like, oh, it's here? Like, because for me, in the beginning, it felt like a nothing, really. Like when I would ask the question, who am I? Wait, you know, there'd be, it'd be very clear there was no I there, but it seemed like there was nothing there. And then over time, it seemed to become, I became aware or it became aware of itself as like a pleasant like a love that's here. And as soon yeah. as I ask the question now, it's like the love is here and it's not just here in this person, in this seeming appearance, it's everywhere. And that's even impossible to say because that, that would imply that there is here stuff. <laughs> it's just love here. There's only love here. It like replaces the scene. So I'm wondering what that looked like for you, like what those steps it seemed like it took. And I've seen videos where you talk about different levels of awareness. So I think that's where I'm I'm trying to get to there. So to, to begin with, we, we might ask a question such as, what is it that knows or is aware of our experience? Now, most of us, most people, are accustomed to giving their attention almost continually to the objective content of experience, our thoughts, images, feelings, sensations, perceptions, activities, and relationships. But this question is a very interesting question. What is it that is aware of all of these? Whatever it is that is aware of a, a thought, feeling, sensation, perception, etc., is obviously not itself a thought, feeling, sensation, or perception. It is that which is aware of it, of them. So this, this question, what is it that knows or is aware of your experience? It takes your attention off the foreground of your experience, the content of your experience, and your attention begins to travel back towards yourself, the one who is aware. Now, by contrast with the, with the very colorful content of experience, the presence of awareness, that, that which knows or is aware of our experience, is, is colorless, is transparent, it is empty of content, it is sometimes said to be void. And so to begin with, it is sometimes experienced as neutral mm. compared to the, the colorful nature of thoughts, feelings, sensations, etc. But in time, as we, as we rest, as that presence of awareness, as we know and feel ourselves to be the presence of awareness with which we know our experience, this feeling of neutrality gives way to a sense of peace. It, it is felt as peace. It's not, we are not just the neutral presence of awareness in the background of experience. We are the peaceful presence of awareness in the background of experience. And then in time, that peace begins to bubble up as a, as a quiet joy. We realize that nothing that takes place in experience either adds anything to our essential self, the presence of awareness, or removes anything from it. In other words, it is, it is inherently fulfilled. Now, this doesn't mean a, that, that, that we feel an intense emotion. Happiness, in the way I use the word it is not really an emotion right it is the very nature of our being it, it the recognition of our being very often uh, brings about a great relaxation in the mind and, and the body and that can be pleasant that the relaxation but the relaxation of the mind and the body is just a side effect of of the recognition of the nature of our being which is more colorless and so that's why i say it feels more like a a kind of quiet, imperturbable peace and joy rather than an explosion of, of happiness. Yes, yes, yes. I always relate the story of um, when I was losing my grandmother, who was my best friend, and it was 2015, the end of 2015. So I'd already read all of your books and I was already pretty aware of this piece in the background and being with her, with her taking her last breath, and that was like a most feared moment all of this life. I did not want to be there, but I was very happy and blessed that I was there. And even with grief and tears, there was peace there. The peace was still there. And I knew in that moment, I'm like, there's nothing that can come or go that this anchor is here now. Like this is yes. it. Yes. <laughs> this is it. And it's just continued to yes. flower. Yes. 
It's very interesting that you relate that story, Nikki, because many people, for many people, grief, intense grief, is very often their their first taste of this peace in the background of experience. And the the reason for this is that normally if something goes wrong in our life, but we feel we can fix it. The computer crashes, the car needs petrol, the the the, the whatever it is, we we fix it. But there are some experiences in life that are so momentous that we cannot fix it. The, the death of another one is one such. It is just beyond our powers to do anything about it. And as a result of that, there is this spontaneous surrender. We just let go. We, we know that in the face of the enormity of this experience, we cannot do anything to prevent it. And so there is this effortless and natural surrender. We're no longer trying to change our current experience. We have surrendered to our current experience. We are no longer in opposition to it. We are one with the current experience. And as a result of that, the peace that is always present in the background of experience percolates into the foreground. Yes. Our, our attempt to change our current experience is no longer valent. So uh, it's. I'm glad that you mentioned that that the experience you had. It, it's very. It, it's very. Uh, it, it's one of the ways that that this natural surrender takes mm. place. Of course, a wise person uh, notices that this happens in in these moments of intense uh, experience, and simply makes this state of surrender their their default yes. attitude to life. It doesn't wait for the intense moment of loss or grief or, or but makes this spontaneous this this surrender, this openness to the moment. It just makes it their natural condition. And as a result, the peace that is the nature of our being shines in the midst of our experience, whatever its content. Exactly. It becomes a continuous way of living, like meditation, really, meditating constantly because that's your natural state. Exactly. Exactly. Meditation ceases to be a practice that we do. It's just, it is what we are. It is our natural state of openness without resistance to our current experience. Yes. I love that. That reminded me, um, talking about grief with peace in the background, there was a talk, and I'm sure you've had so many thousands of them, you probably don't remember. Maybe you do. Um, there was a guy that was talking about being depressed, and you related it to like a screen. And you were like, when there's an image of a sun, sunny day on the screen, you know, that's fine. The screen is still the screen. And if there's an image, like a black image on the screen, like the whole screen is black, the screen is still there too, you know, and I thought that was very powerful. Yes, whatever it is that is aware of our most ecstatic moments is exactly the same as that which is aware of our saddest or most depressed moments. And, and the awareness that is aware of our ecstatic moments and our sad moments is not changed by either of them. It is just present, open, in the background, just like we could say that, a, 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 as you, the example you give, that a screen is not changed by the content of the movie. Well, a, awareness is like the screen, to utterly intimately one with experience, not, not, not removed from experience in the background, utterly intimately one with experience, like the screen is one with the image, but at the same time, free of it, yeah, of it. The screen is never harmed by the movie, and we awareness are never harmed by the content of experience. But once, once that becomes clear, we no longer need to defend ourselves against experience because experience cannot hurt us. I, I'm talking psychologically, of course. I, I don't mean if one is in physical danger, of course, but we, we don't need to defend ourselves emotionally or psychologically because we know that what we are cannot be harmed by experience, nor do we have to seek a particular experience in order to be at peace or happy, because our happiness is prior to experience. Mm. It's already present. Mm. 
So does Rupert still get angry sometimes or sad sometimes? Like, does that still roll I in? I <laughs> remember when Rupert last got angry. Oh my God. It, it's not, it's not that, um, it's not that these emotions don't, don't appear from time to time. I'm, I'm far from perfect. I'm not sure that there is such a thing as a perfect human being or what indeed that might look like. So I'm not suggesting that these uh, emotions cannot still be provoked from time to time by particular situations, but they are provoked less and less frequently. And when they are provoked, it, it's a matter of, usually a matter of moments before they are recognized and dropped. Whereas in the past, a, a feeling of hurt might be provoked in relation to your partner or, or a friend, and that would lead to some argument. And, and you, you're, you're fighting for two weeks mm -hmm. or not talking to each other. So a tiny feeling of hurt can lead to enormous conflict in relationship. I, we, all, we all know this. So it, now if a feeling is provoked in a situation, it, it's very quickly recognized. And it, it recognized this feeling does not arise on behalf of awareness. Awareness has not been hurt by the comment, by the whatever it is. And, and, and as a result of this understanding, it drops. And that gives the, the situation, the relationship, whatever it is, the best chance of returning to, to harmony. I love that. I noticed maybe a few years ago, whereas I would have been upset about something for a week or even just a whole day, um, it had moved to uh, maybe just an hour and then, you know, yes. just in the moment. And then it was, oh, like literally becoming aware of that piece in the background as the situation was unfolding, like during. And exactly. it's yes. like really a personal question too, because still fear comes. Fear is the way Nikki manifests most of the time. Like that's the main like anxiety, worry. Um, so when that comes now, it's coming, but the screen is like very prominent. Like there, it's never forgotten. It, but it, it, I'm just it, wondering, does it ever stop? <laughs> yes, you're, you're right. It, is awareness anxious or worried about the current situation? A, a, awareness is like the open, empty space of a room. The open, empty space of a room uh, is never concerned with what is taking place in the room, or the, the screen is never concerned by the content of the movie. It is simply open to it. So, yes, the, the more we feel that, the less the anxiety rises. Now, if, if there is a, a deep habit, uh, the, the, um, a typical response in a situation for, let's say, the last 20 years has been to, to, to respond with fear or anxiety, then that habit may be quite, quite uh, well-worn, quite, quite a deep habit in us. So it will take some time to, to dissipate. But now that we no longer feed that anxiety, now that it is simply rising, it no longer has our support or even our interest we are no longer colluding with it it just begins to rise less and less and less often and it lasts when it does rise as you say it lasts for less and less time yeah. and it's less intense too it seems and like it's less intense. sometimes i'm sure you feel that when the impulse to be worried or anxious rises in you before the full-blown feeling of anxiety has has taken shape inside you when just the that first impulse to, to, to respond with fear or anxiety, you notice the rising of the impulse and you, 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 you meet it yes. from this perspective of the openness of awareness and the impulse just, just subsides again, it never even takes the shape of a full-blown reaction. Yes. So is that, can you call that, like, is that surrendering? Is that the let go when you notice the impulse and then you immediately turn to that presence or it, that presence announces itself, you know, like just becoming aware of that is that the surrendering. To begin with, we have to, most of us may have to make a conscious effort to go back to the presence of awareness yeah. in the background of experience. And a question such as uh, who am I or what is it that is aware of your experience takes us back there. And to begin with, because of the, because of the gravitational pull 
of experience. We may find we need to, to make an effort to go back and to stay there. Then our attention is pulled out again. We make the effort to go back. But in every time we go back to our true nature of awareness, we are, we are weakening the power that experience has to take us away from ourself. And in time, less and less effort is required until we begin to feel my being or the presence of awareness is not something I visit from time to time. It, it's what I am all the time. Exactly. And so, and, and then, so then effort is no longer required to, to maintain it. It just becomes this natural state of openness. It's a natural surrender. But yes, returning to the presence of awareness is, is it, it, it could be called surrender. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Can you share the example that you teach with uh, King Lear and John Smith with my audience? I'm not sure if you all are familiar uh, with Rupert and his teachings, but that's one of my favorites. It's one that I've heard recently, and I think it's brilliant. So maybe you can relate it to people that are new to the Enlightenment space that are interested. Um, I think it's a really cool intro. Okay. So, I, yes, I use the example of an actor, John Smith, who uh, lives a, a peaceful and happy life at home. And every night he goes to his theatre and he's playing King Lear. Some of you may know the story of King Lear. Uh, king Lear he's the king of England. He has a, a, a difficult and troubled relationship with his three daughters and he's at war with the French. So suffice to say that being both a father and a king is something of a nightmare for him. So uh, in this example, John Smith represents who we truly are, the presence of awareness, not our thoughts, feelings, sensations, perceptions, not the, the body we take ourselves to be, not the mother, the father, the brother, the sister, the friend, the, the, the doctor, the bus driver, the artist. All, all of these are uh, um, relationships or activities that are, that are added to us. So John Smith refers to our essential being, the, the presence of awareness. Now, King Lear is not himself a person. There is no person on stage called King Lear. The only person on stage is John Smith. But John Smith, on this occasion, has become so involved with King Lear's thoughts and feelings that he temporarily forgets, I am John Smith, and he feels he believes and feels, I am King Lear. Now, at that moment, he's no longer play-acting. He is suffering because he takes his relationship with his daughters, the troubles in his kingdom, the war with the French. He is suffering. Now, at the end of the play, and, and this is this is a, like us, we, we awareness, we forget or overlook the fact but what we essentially are is this inherently peaceful, unconditionally fulfilled presence of awareness. And we allow ourselves to become entangled in our experience, identified with our thoughts and feelings, our body, our activities, our relationships, our employment and everything. So this is, this is John Smith imagining that he is king there. We awareness, we awareness lose ourselves in the content of experience. And then we seem as a result to become this person who is defined by their thoughts, images, feelings, memories, activities, relationships, etc. So uh, John Smith is the presence for awareness. King Lear is the, the person we seem to be. Now, at the end of the play, normally, uh, John Smith would, would uh, immediately re revert to being John Smith. But on this occasion, so involved is he in the content of the play, in, in, in King Lear's thoughts and feelings, that he forgets to revert to himself. So he, he goes backstage and he's sitting miserable in his dressing room and his friend comes in to congratulate him on his fabulous performance and, and finds him miserable and, and, and says to him, look, why are you miserable? And then King Lear starts telling him about his terrible relationship with his daughters and the war with the French and the troubles in his kingdom. His friend, of course, says that, 
Don't be silly. You're not, you're not miserable for any of those reasons. You're miserable because you've forgotten who you are. Who are you? And then King Lear says, well, I'm the father of three daughters. I'm the king of England. I'm like, no, 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 no. He said, those, that's not who you are. That's just, these are activities and relationships that, that you have assumed. They're, they're not really who you are. So tell us who you are. So King Lear ponders and goes, begins to go into himself. And he starts describing his thoughts and his feelings. And, and, and his friend says, no, no, you're... Your thoughts and your feelings are, are not always with you. They are added to you and then removed from you. They are not really who you are. Go, who are you really? And his friend is teaching King Lear self-inquiry. Of course, he doesn't call it that, but that's what he's doing. He's encouraging so-called King Lear to, to go deeply within himself, not, not to identify himself with his activities and relationship, not to identify himself with his thoughts and his feelings. King Lear travels back, further and further back, through all his layers of experiences, his memories, his etc. And then at a, at, at a certain moment, there is this recognition, oh, I am John Smith. And at that moment, his suffering comes to an end. Well, that is a, it is a, it's the best illustration I know for what, um, that there's, a, there's one more, I, I may, we may come around to but one more analogy, but it, it's the best analogy that I know to, to really graphically indicate in, in a very experiential way, not in an intellectual way, what happens when we travel back in ourselves, through our, into ourselves, di discarding everything that is not essential to us. That doesn't mean to say that we reject it, but we, we realize it is not essential to us. Our thoughts, our memories, our feelings, our history, our activities, our relationships, even our most precious and intimate relationships, none of these are essential to us. And as we travel back, eventually we come to something in us that we cannot discount, something that is essentially ourself. And it is simply the fact of being aware. And there is no sorrow there. There is no agitation there. It is pure peace. I think that is the clearest description, the clearest analogy I've ever heard. And that's why I wanted you to share. And thank you. Thank you so much for that. I, I'm now very curious of the other illustration that you have <laughs> to see. Other illustration I use, this is the illustration I use normally to describe this, this process, because like you, it's the, it's the, it's the most effective one I know. But there's another analogy, which uh, I sometimes use in relation to a slightly different question. When when we hear about enlightenment, if if you ask most people what they thought of as enlightenment, they would probably probably not your listeners because they're fairly accustomed to this kind of. But most people out on the street, you just do a survey and you ask people what what do you think enlightenment means. Most people would give would describe some exotic uh, idea, feeling, image, experience, something rather, something very extraordinary that might be attained in the future if one were to uh, practice hard enough for, for, for long enough. So the, the other analogy that I sometimes use to show that enlightenment is really a misnomer. It is not an experience that happens to us. And, and it is not something that one needs special qualifications for. It's not something extraordinary. It, it is simply the recognition of our being. That, that's it. It's just the recognition of our being. And the analogy that I sometimes use is, is like, like getting undressed at night. When we get undressed at night before going to bed, we take off layer after layer after layer of clothes and we, uh, our naked body is revealed. We don't suddenly become our naked body. And, oh, that's good. <laughs> that's uh, good. Being our naked body standing there in the bedroom is not an extraordinary experience. In, in fact, it's the most intimate, familiar feeling we have. We, we have always had the feeling of being our naked body. Most of the time, we don't realize it because it's covered up with clothes. So this, this recognition of our naked body, 
this revelation, the revealing of our naked body. It's interesting that the word revelation or revealing comes from the Latin revelare. It means literally to lay bare. So this this um, analogy of un- undressing is is again it's 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 an, it, it's an, an analogy of going back into oneself, discarding everything that is not essential to us until the the most intimate, obvious, familiar aspect of ourself is laid bare or revealed, namely our being. It's not an extraordinary experience. It may, in some cases. It is such a relief to to disengage from the content of experience, from all those anxious thoughts and troubled feelings and difficult relationships, and and just return to one's being. It is sometimes such a relief that the it, it, the recognition of our being is accompanied by great relaxation of the body and expansion of the mind, and there can be some colourful experiences that accompany this recognition, that those experiences, if indeed they happen, they often don't, but if they do, they're just temporary side effects on, on the mi- in the mind and the body. They are not the recognition itself. Right. And Can you rec- work the other way, though? Can you, because I often, with women that I work with, I say, relax, consciously relax the body. Like, with, does that help, like, in the process of inquiry, coming yeah. back <laughs> the other way? You can you you can relax the body and the mind as a prelude to this recognition of one's being. For instance, let, let me go to the King Lear analogy. King Lear, uh, at the end of the play, he's sitting in the dressing room and he's really stressed out. You know, he's, he's, his daughters have died. That he's at war with a friend. He's really miserable. He's really anxious. Now, his friend knows intuitively that if he were to say to his companion, so-called King Lear, what is it that knows or is aware of your experience or who am I? It, 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 that's just going to fly straight over yep. his <laughs> Right. So uh, out of uh, compassion and understanding, he might say to so-called King Lear, uh, just take five deep breaths. Just relax your body. Just unfold your hands. He might give him some preliminary practice to do to, to prepare him to take the next step into himself. So the relaxation of the body or the mind, or for instance, um, uh, for, let's say a practice such as repeating a mantra mm. would be one such example of a preparatory practice. All day long, we think of 10,000 things. And it's just, for many people, it's just too much of a, of a leap to go from 10,000 things all the way back to our true nature. So uh, our friend might say to us, okay, instead of paying attention to 10,000 things, just pay attention to one thing. Try this mantra. Try the uh, uh, flame. Focus on your breath. Focus on the pause between your breaths. None of these experiences by themselves will take us to our true nature, but they are like a, a, a preparation, a prelude to the return to our true nature for one who is so lost in the content of their experience that it's just too big an ask to go all the way back so perfectly valid to say to your to to, to your to your people just just relax take a deep breath and then when there is sufficient relaxation you can then and this is the the skill uh, and this is the art form of of, uh, teaching it for want of a better whether you you at the right moment you choose just the right question that is tailored to the person. You you might say, what is it that has never left you? What has been with you all your life? What is it that is aware of your experience? A question such as this, and if they are sufficiently re- relaxed, it will just be one small step back to their being. Wow. Your um, 10,000 things made me think of my favorite quote of yours, and it, I'm sure I'll botch it, but you said something like, um, with the mind, you see or you know 10,000 things, um, but you feel only one reality, like fill with your heart, you know, yes. know with your heart truly. Is that yes. what your experience is there? Yes, exactly. It is the mind's, uh, by, by the mind, I mean the, the activity of thinking and perceiving. It, it is the, the function of the mind. 
to divide experience up into 10,000 things so that we can talk about uh, people and books and, 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 and objects and time. It, it, it's, a, it's a legitimate and necessary function of the mind. If we were to believe, however, that the multiplicity and diversity of objects and people that the mind describes were absolutely real in their own right, then that is a recipe for conflict and, and suffering, the self and other. So or the, or one, of the, one of the hallmarks of all the great religious and spiritual teachings, one, that happiness is our true nature. And, and the second, everyone and everything share their being. Although we seem to be many, the mind knows many things, many different people, but the being of everyone and everything is the same being. Uh, being Just, here, being there, being everywhere, right? Yeah, so, so the, 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 yeah, so that, that, the, the recognition of our shared being, that's what the experience of love is, the recognition that underneath the, the multiplicity and diversity of things, everyone and everything is is a, so to speak a refraction of the same infinite indivisible being just like all the objects and people that appear in your dream you you you, you have a dream you travel across america you it takes you three months you meet hundreds of people you do all sorts of different things you wake up in the morning and you think you realize everyone and everything i encountered was was a, a, a manifestation of my own single unlimited mind. There seemed to be many people and many things, but it was all one thing. So that's the that's what love is, the recognition that underneath the multiplicity and diversity of objects and people, we are one. There is only one. Yes, yes. So I think my final question would be, knowing that, that love, this oneness what are the fruits of this practice of this recognition what are the fruits of the recognition of oneness in your day-to-day quote-unquote real world life well let's take these two understandings that i suggested that are really the the essence of the non-dual understanding the first peace and happiness are our nature and the second everyone and everything share their being so the, the, what is the fruit of the first recognition? Peace and happiness are our nature. We no longer approach experience, activities, objects, relationships, substances, for the purpose of finding peace and happiness in them. We no longer seek, for instance, a relationship, either an ordinary friendship or more intimate relationship, for the purpose of being happy. If we expect the other to produce happiness for us, that is a recipe for disappointment in ourselves and conflict in the relationship. It doesn't mean to say that we don't seek relationships. No, it's fine to have friends and intimate relationships, but we don't seek them for the purpose of finding happiness. On the contrary, we seek them for the purpose of sharing our happiness and celebrating it, expressing it and communicating it. So that, that's, the, that's the first route. We, we relieve the world and our friends of the impossible burden of producing happiness for us. They cannot do it. They will never do it. They're not supposed to do it. Exactly. This was never supposed to be something we derive from the world or from other people. So that enables us to go out. It doesn't mean to say that we retire from the world. No, it enables us to go out fully into the world and engage with it in whatever way we want, but not for the purpose of, of finding. Fulfilling, right, finding fulfillment. You're already full, right? We don't, in other words, we cease using the world to serve our happiness and we start using our happiness to serve the world. Oh, that's a quote. That's a power quote. <laughs> that's so, awesome. That's the first. That's the first fruit. Uh, the yeah. fruit of the recognition that um, peace and happiness is our nature. 
So that, and then the fruit of the second great recognition that everyone and everything share their, their being. The, the, this is the, if one takes this single attitude into one's life and we were to meet particularly everyone, all, all people, every person we meet, not just the ones we like, not just the ones we're, we're friendly with, but, but everyone. If we were to, to feel that irrespective of the way the person in front of us uh, thinks, feels, acts, behaves, re relates, that they are the same being that we are. And we allow that understanding to inform our relationship with that person, whether it's an intimate relationship, a colleague at work, a friend, a neighbor, a stranger. One doesn't have to imagine very far. Take, take the political situation in your country. Oh. Imagine, imagine if the people at the head of government, these two warring factions, if they were to understand and feel that everyone everyone with whom they come in contact or that the entire population are the same being that they are. Think what kind of politics would evolve from that. I think, think what kind of a society we would, we would have. It would change everything. It would it's change yeah, everything. It's like, it's not me and them. It's not me against him or me against them. Understanding. We, we, at the deep, we don't necessarily share our thoughts. Right. We, we can we can disagree ab about things. There, there will always be differences at the level of thoughts and feelings, but in the depths of ourselves, we are the same being, and we allow that understanding to inform our conversation. It, it transforms intimate relationship. It transforms friendships. It transforms uh, any relationship, uh, a work relationship. It, is transformed just by holding this understanding in our hearts when we are relating with the other. So th how, these are the these are the two two of the fruits. How long did it take for you to be able to go out on the streets and immediately feel and know that that stranger you share you could feel that being there was the same as the being here. I'm asking again from personal experience of deciding before I leave the house, like, I'm not going to forget. And then five minutes later, I'm like, ah, but I remember now when I'm out and about. But yes, before, but, but, I forget the whole time I was out. Every time, every time you forget, every time we go out and we see someone, or we hear someone, or we see someone on TV, you only have to turn on the news at night mm -hmm. to have this, this feeling of, of, of provoked in one. And you notice, the thoughts, the judgments, everything. If it, it, every time you notice that and you pause, you just, it's like putting your own thoughts on pause and you go back and you realize this person, whether it's on the screen or in real life, this person behind all their thoughts and feelings, their being is the, is, is, is my being. We share our being. Then you, you listen again or engage again. And every time we do that, we, we weaken the capacity that our judgments have to veil our shared being. And our judgments, they, they, they begin to subside. It doesn't mean to say that we lose the capacity to judge a thought. If somebody says um, two plus two equals five, we still have the capacity to say, no, that's wrong. <laughs> We judge the thought, not the person. Right. The person, we know that the person is ultimately the same being that we are. That's the experience of love. So we don't have to like everybody, but we do have to love everybody. Exactly. Exactly. And you're Liking loving everyone by just feeling that truth that's behind, exactly. yeah, in the background. Love is the recognition that we share our being. So love is about the sharing of our being. Whether we like someone or not is do we enjoy the same activities? Do we think in the same way? Do we enjoy going out for dinner together? That that's the liking something is someone is liking the ob, their objective qualities, the way they think, feel, act, etc. That that's what we may like or we may not like, and it's fine not to like not to like uh, um, everyone. But we are called to love everyone. Beautiful. 
Beautiful. Can you please tell my audience how to find you if there's anything coming up in your retreats that they can participate in? Yes, yes. Very, very easily. My name is Rupert uh, Spiron, S-P-I-R-A. So just uh, Google um, my website, www.rupertspira.com. Or even easier, just go to YouTube. I don't know how many hundreds of uh, videos there are there. That's perhaps the the best way to get you can just scroll through the videos and, yeah. and so and then every week i do um webinars a little bit conversations like this where we can uh, have conversations questions and answers and, and then from time to time uh, i do a, a weekend meditation retreat everything of course online at the moment so those are the two places probably youtube and my website rupertspira.com fabulous thank you so much for this and this was so clear you're doing a wonderful wonderful work and uh, i wish you the very best oh thank you thank you and thank you everyone at home for tuning in again i'll be back very soon with another teacher please uh, subscribe and leave a comment on itunes and i will talk to you soon i love you all This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.